to today's episode of Legal Bites. I am your host, Sophia, and today we will be talking about the concept of territoriality and the interplay between outer space and cyberspace from a legal perspective. It's time to introduce my two guests to the show. Dr. Marco Ferzani is the legal counsel and head of the legal services department at the European Space Agency. In his position, he provides a full spectrum of legal advice and guidance on the legal and programmatic aspect of ESA's programs and policies. As ESA's legal counsel, Dr. Farzani is advisor to the ESA Director General and to the ESA Council for all institutional and legal matters, including the interpretation of the ESA Convention and all relevant legal instruments. Moreover, he advises ESA's organs and its member states on a wide variety of legal matters. This includes protecting the and defending ESA's rights and position, identifying risks and devising legal solutions to mitigate this, conducting international negotiations, as well as preparing institutional decisions, resolutions, declarations, and other legal instruments for the execution of European space programs. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me today. Thank you. Uh, so, with Marco, we have an expert on outer space, but we are also joined by Professor Chris Reed, an expert on cyberspace. He has been thinking, researching, and writing about legal technology since before there was any legal technology. He is a co-investigator in the Microsoft Computing Research Center. Research in which he was involved led to the EU directives on electronic signatures and on electronic commerce. He teaches electronic commerce law at the Center for Commercial Law Studies at Cornell University of London. In addition to electronic commerce law, which includes cross-border regulation of online activities, electronic signatures, and online banking and financial services, Chris Reid researches community self-regulation, AI, and various aspects of cloud computing. I am thrilled to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Sophia. So, uh, thank you both for joining us today, and if you don't mind, I will jump straight into the questions. So, uh, Marco, could you talk to us about the fundamentals? What general regime governs the exploration and economics of exploitation of outer space? Thank you very much. That's a very good starting opening question. Uh, we are now uh, addressing outer space, which means outside of this uh, planet, which means outside of any uh, national territory. And so uh, national uh, sovereignty or national laws don't uh, extend automatically to the regime of outer space. Outer space is outside our own realm. Uh, but since the uh, 60s, when the first uh, missions went to space, even before the first human put foot on the moon, uh, the international community has agreed to some fundamentals, as you call them, a general regime governing outer space. And it is in the so-called Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which sets some fundamental principles, underlying principles. Uh, the first principle is that outer space is not subject to national sovereignty or national appropriation. So there's not one uh, nation state that can put its own law or rules uh, into space. It is not because you see an American flag on the one side of the moon or a Chinese flag on the other side of the moon that it belongs to one country or the other. Uh, so there is a common general regime which is indicated for the benefit and the common good. Second point, exploration and use of space is considered to be free. So there's free access to outer space. 
any nation state or private enterprise can go to other space without the need to ask other nation states. So this freedom of use and inspiration. However, respecting the principles of non-appropriation and respecting also another fundamental principle which is called uh, peaceful uses of other space. So other space uh, does not allow um, weapons of mass destruction or, uh, or um, aggressions in other space. And that's in accordance with general international law. And in the end, and that's very important, states uh, remain accountable towards each other and even internally to so-called continuously authorize and supervise the use of other space, which means that the principles and many other uh, liability principles uh, in case of damage to others, in case of operations, of course still exist, because if you do something wrong and you provoke a damage, there is a regime of international liability, and that one is important, even in case of re-entry of objects into the surface of the Earth, there is liability of those who have launched, the so-called launching state. So that exists, so freedom of access to space, peaceful use, but accountability of each state or the others. So this means a regime of uh, liability, and therefore national laws that internally transform or translate international liability into national responsibility according to national legislation, which means that several states have set national space legislation uh, so that they can um, authorize and supervise national activity, including private enterprise from each state, which are authorized, and then they become uh, accessible to space with the principle of freedom and uh, responsibility. In a nutshell, that's I would summarize the general regime, that it's a quite uh, open and permissive regime, a lot easier than other regimes like uh, air traffic, uh, aviation or maritime law, uh, but also because it's based on the experience of the last, say, 50 years of space flight, which has given some opportunities, but much less so far, much less use and much less traffic than you see in uh, uh, um, national airspace or in maritime uh, traffic. So what about cyberspace? Clearly technology pushes territorial and legal boundaries. How are regulators redefining them? Ah, okay, that's, that's an interesting question because cyberspace is, is much more complicated from a legal and regulatory point of view than outer space. And, and the reason for that is because although it might look like it, it's a separate space where you know, things are happening just in cyberspace, um, everybody involved in using it is located in a physical space which is in some legal jurisdiction. Uh, and a, a second reason that is much more complicated is because it changes much more rapidly than outer space. It, it's quite expensive to do something in outer space, so it takes quite a long time for new things to happen. It's very cheap and quick to do something new in cyberspace. And, and so we have a, an interesting conflict between you know, what is in theory legally permitted and in practice what can be done. Um, anybody who wanted to run some new activity that might be unlawful in some country can just do it. And then the question becomes, how do we cope with that in this rather complicated space? So if, if we looked at how legal regulation currently works, um, the theory would go something like this, that we have national laws, and those national laws clearly regulate people who are situated in those national territories, companies and individuals. 
Then we have the question about how far those national laws extend to cover the activities of people who are not in the country, but whose activities in cyberspace are visible or have some effects in the country. And this is a complex and evolving landscape because initially, at least, we had legacy laws, laws written before cyberspace, which didn't really define their national boundaries because they didn't need to. Uh, for example, a law about selling things only applied within the territory because you could only sell things within the territory. And, and then you'd have odd exceptions like mail order, but you'd have physical movement of stuff into the territory. Now I can buy content online from another country. And the problems we have are that the old laws don't define their boundaries. So initially, courts were interpreting to, interpreting to say, well, they apply to anything that has effects in the country. And that means that national laws leak beyond national boundaries to the whole of cyberspace, which means that if you're acting in cyberspace, potentially you're subject to every country's law in the world, which is, say, 200 different legal regimes. And that's clearly nonsensical and unworkable. So what has been happening is that regulators have been trying to redefine the boundaries of how far their national laws move into cyberspace, usually on some basis of a kind of the idea, concept of targeting. The idea being that if you're acting in cyberspace, then you should be subject to other countries' laws if you are trying to access those other countries and deal with people in them. But if you're not targeting those countries, then you really shouldn't be. And that seems to be a consensus that is emerging, but you get different answers in different places, depending on different national priorities. And then to make the mix even more complicated, we have the rise of the big intermediaries like Google and Facebook and Amazon and Netflix, and they are working on a global scale, and they define their own legal regimes through contracts, which apply the same everywhere in the world. And we then have potential conflicts between those private sector legal regimes and the 200 plus different national regimes that apply in local parts of the world. So the fundamentals are, it's very complicated, it's very messy, and it's in a state of constant evolution. So what are the most important challenges that regulators face in your industry at the moment? I will start first by noting that uh, the legal regime of outer space uh, at, at the first glance looks simpler of what uh, Chris uh, entertained us with the cyberspace complications. Because as I said, fundamental principles exist. In the end, it's up to uh, national states to regulate and then reflect that into internal domestic legislation. Yet national regulators... Uh, uh, have uh, challenges. First of all, because the regime, of, international regime of space, what we call space law, is being set fundamentally in the 60s and 70s with a few examples and few missions. But now the uh, easier access to space, the more affordable um, technology to make uh, space launches and mission, makes much more uh, practice and more uh, phenomena that, of course, require to update the law, which is uh, a big challenge because these are international conventions, treaty to be ratified multilaterally because as soon as you go to outer space, all national states are concerned, they have an interest. 
And secondly, because regulators typically uh, need, it's their duty, to align uh, domestic law to international obligations. So regulators uh, have uh, double work, both international preparation, international development of international law, and alignment uh, with domestic laws, which many countries have done uh, and many countries have not yet done or not fully. So it is a constant work that on one side uh, international responds to the evolving need of the uh, operators and industry, uh, which now are accelerating because of uh, economic development of what we call new uh, space economy, and internally because of the need uh, classically to international laws. As I gave the example before, the general international regime of space law is relatively uh, simple to grasp with the fundamentals I just mentioned, However, when if you want to have a full picture, you also need to read national laws that implement it. And there you might find differences where regulators, uh, because they want uh, have an authority to regulate and control, they, set, uh, they may set strict conditions about national authorization or licensing before an enterprise can go to space. So uh, these challenges, I would say, are permanent. They existed always. But they're, now they're becoming more stringent and more urgent because of many uh, initiatives, which are welcome because of the new economy, uh, which are welcome because it means a lot of new entrants in the space business, which are welcome because they develop uh, many different applications useful for human life, like telecommunication, meteorology, climate motor monitoring or navigation. This is all welcome applications. But of course, it means the more phenomena, the more application, the more... Uh, innovative the business, more uh, challenges uh, is for regulators to update and align the, um, the legal, both international and national uh, legal framework. So we have a lot of work. We, the space lawyers, either internationally, as I do in, a, in an international space agency, or in national administrations and uh, regulators, have a lot of work. I promise a lot of work to all the lawyers who are interested and would like to work in space law. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting because we have, if you like, starting from different starting points, we have a, a convergence of problems almost. Uh, and we have very similar challenges in cyberspace. Um, one of the, the biggest challenges I think that cyberspace faces is that um, there is this conflict between what national law regimes would like to do and what the collective of users of cyberspace feel ought to be done. Because there is a kind of normative feeling amongst people in cyberspace. Their expectations ha have developed. Um, one of the most obvious ones, one that most people listening will be familiar with, is the idea that all the information online is just free to access. Yeah, it's out there, so you should just be able to use it, listen to it, absorb it, watch it, whatever the information is. And that's a clear clash between what national regulators would like to achieve. So one example might be um, free speech laws. Uh, right. So the United States, for example, has its First Amendment. Congress shall make no laws abridging the freedom of speech. Everybody knows that the US is a very strong free speech state. By contrast, in those countries in Europe, which suffered badly during World War II from the Nazi regime, there are very strong 
anti-Nazi laws. So speech which is perfectly okay in the US is not okay in, say, France or Germany or Belgium or Italy. And those differences make a lot of sense. And we're used to speaking differently in different places. So if I go to a friend's house, um, there are things I might say there, which I wouldn't say, let's say, in a public lecture theatre. So we don't know about changing our behaviour in different spaces. And then how do we translate that to online, where the speech is crossing the entire world? And that's a huge problem, trying to sort out where, if, if at all, there are boundaries. And one of the problems that we, we face is that we didn't have that moment which space law had in the 1960s and 70s, when there were only a very few players who could possibly go into outer space. And they were all national governments, and national governments could reach an agreement about how they should behave. And now that is being challenged by the rise of the sec private sector in cyberspace. But we at least start, have a starting point. It's entirely the opposite in, in cyberspace. Uh, private sector hurtled in doing whatever it wanted to do. And now national lawmakers are coming afterwards saying, hang on a minute, we would quite like there to be some, some safety, some, some order in cyberspace. But how do we impose it, given that it is so complicated and national governments can't agree? So certainly, I can't imagine an agreement between, for example, the United States uh, government and the French government about the proper limits of speech about Nazism in cyberspace. I don't think they could ever agree because they have fundamentally different starting points. And that's a major challenge. And then that moves over into the private sector because all these people are speaking via, let's say, Facebook. And Facebook is sitting there going, whose standards should we adopt? Should we adopt the French standards or the American standards? It's quite easy for Facebook. They're a US corporation. So they try to export the US standards worldwide. But we, we currently don't know how to solve this. This is a real problem. And what do you think can be done to mitigate these challenges? How has this area evolved beyond original assumptions and how can the law reflect that change? I will try first to give an example that follows, fits and follows up, up well from what Chris has described. Um, I give you an example that did not work and this helps us understand what will work. Exactly for the reasons of uh, international free speech, that Chris was mentioning in cyberspace, uh, there was an attempt, after, in, after having set general principle of freedom of access, freedom of uh, uh, no national sovereignty, in the early 80s, which is already 40 years ago, because of the emergence of a new tool, which was, which was the satellite telecommunication, so you could broadcast your signal up to a satellite and immediately over other states, many other states, the idea of freedom of uh, telecommunication and freedom of content came up uh, because technically it was immediately possible. Because of, of powerful satellites, you could relay radio or, uh, or, um, or video signals, messages from your own country immediately to many other countries around the world. This was a, a, a welcome development for many international broadcasting, uh, watching the news or the sports reports. Uh, but immediately gave a very powerful tool uh, for even for political message and propaganda. So what happened? A few states at that time, I remember at that time, the early 80s, in the area around UNESCO, uh, tried to set up a convention and a treaty 
that would limit the ability of states to broadcast abroad via satellite uh, unless you would have what was called at that time prior consent given from the receiving state where the Hertz station would receive exactly to limit the uh, so-called uh, broadcasting directly to citizens of the state. Uh, that was, especially with the, the political climate of the blocs at that time, seemed to be um, needed by especially some states. Uh, that convention was uh, was drafted but was never accepted ratified because many states did not want uh, to be limited by so-called prior consent of the receiving end. And that's one example of how can you solve a challenge that formally seemed to be a tool, but was not realistic, even geopolitically was not realistic at all. So it never materialized. So there is no prior consent to international telecommunication messages today, exactly the way Chris has mentioned. And that's why, by experience, by legal international experience, we know that uh, some of the challenges uh, can be tackled, but not in a way how to uh, regulate uh, perfectly in a system that uh, would give uh, prior consent to all. Uh, so we have to mitigate this kind of challenge, uh, building up uh, common values, and where we cannot build common values or common uh, procedures or standards, well, uh, there is not uh, consensus for regulation, and that's what we find sometimes at the levels of United Nations. We remain with the, the fundamentals that we have, the one I mentioned at the opening. We may uh, add and complement with some uh, technical standards of uh, good practices, some code of conducts, but in reality, we cannot uh, really mitigate all the challenges. Uh, what remains available to mitigate the challenges is uh, national laws, to the extent, of course, they comply with international obligations, and they do not limit over that. But this is very much a national exercise in accordance with national legal cultures and the national constitutions, of course. So uh, challenges can be mitigated. Some challenges cannot be mitigated because you need an international regime that which is not realistic and not accepted internationally. And in the end, uh, national law uh, can uh, can help going be beyond the original assumptions in that respect. That the satellite communication is very interesting. That there is an almost exact parallel between what is happening at, at the time of recording. It was only a few days ago that um, the government of Nigeria announced a ban on use of Twitter in Nigeria because the, the Twitter had censored. Um, taken down some tweets by the Nigerian president. Uh, and that that's one thing that is technically possible in cyberspace, that states can simply cut off access to particular services. This is commonly used for child sex abuse images and for sites which infringe copyright and are just pirate copyright sites. And that's clearly uncontroversial. But when it comes in, into global communications infrastructure like Twitter or Facebook, whatever, um, that's more, more interesting and more difficult. Uh, so states can do this. States can simply block access to particular online services. But people immediately find a way around it. Um, the technology, because it's available to everybody, enables individuals to just um, get find ways around border controls. And so these kind of cutting up of these reimposition of national borders tends to be quite symbolic. 
And I, what will happen in Nigeria is in a few weeks, the thing will be quietly forgotten and Twitter will be allowed in again. And the dispute will gradually go away. Uh, and what's quite intriguing is it works the opposite direction too. So uh, a few months ago, there was a dispute between Facebook and the Australian government about whether Australia could require Facebook to pay Australian newspapers for making its their, their content available via Facebook. And Facebook temporarily cut off all news sources into Australia. And then there was an agreement uh, done with the Australian newspapers, which the Australian government presented as a win. And I think internally Facebook thinks it's a win as well. So it's a much more dynamic process. There are notionally things that can be done to control boundaries in cyberspace. But in practice, those things are temporary. The long-term solution is in theory that states agree how to coordinate their national laws. But the problem is because they start from such different places, achieving that coordination is really difficult. Uh, again, Two days before we, we made this recording, the G7 group of countries announced an agreement on how to tax digital businesses. Because this has been a real problem. Um, businesses which are supplying services and content online from outside a country don't fall within that country's taxing jurisdiction under the current rules. So the tax income uh, is taxed in another country uh, from the one where the economic activity took place. And the G7 has come up with something which they, they claim to be a solution, but that has taken them 25 years. There has been 25 years of discussion about how to solve this problem to get to the point where seven countries have agreed. They now have to sell this to the G20 countries, which won't agree it because it is too much against their national interests. And then beyond that, they have to sell it to the rest of the world I'm not saying it'll take another 25 years until we've solved the tax problem, but international coordination is so difficult because each country has such different interests. Thank you again for joining Queen Mary's Legal Bites podcasts. I hope you enjoyed this talk as much as I did. Be sure to join us next month for part two of this episode which will discuss whether governments can retain national authority in the context of outer space and cyberspace, and will touch upon further challenges that both industries might face in the future.